This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. As I'm closing my eyes, you kind of wonder, I wondered, like, is this it? You know, like, I couldn't breathe. There's a lot going on. And they get critiqued and analyzed and the people that are doing that have the benefit of hindsight but those officers at that moment don't welcome to diagnostic cops calling i'm anthony weaver and my guest on this episode is a 17-year veteran of a local police department A little over 15 years ago, in November of 2005, he nearly paid the ultimate sacrifice as a police officer when he was shot in the line of duty by a suspect during a warrant service. He is currently a detective, and just like all active officers I have on the podcast, he is here on his own volition and is not representing his department. The things discussed on this episode are his own, and I'm honored that he has agreed to speak with me for this episode. I'd like to welcome Detective Jevin Miller to the podcast. Jevin, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Excited yeah, to be here. Absolutely. Um, so as I was I was learning more about you and and looking over, you know, uh, how you've served and things you've been involved in, I noticed that you also serve on a local fire department and that you get to drive the apparatus. <laughs> is that how they is that how they say it? Yeah, you can't just say engine or truck. It yeah, apparatus <laughs> covers it all. I yeah. I don't understand, uh, and maybe you can break this down. There, there seems to be not. I don't, I don't want to call it animosity, but this. Uh, I don't know. What would you call it between cops and firefighters? Uh, maybe friendly banter, maybe, yeah. or you know, a little animosity. Sometimes I don't know. You know, I, I think it is animosity sometimes, yeah. but I think I think it's because cops look at firefighters and uh, everyone loves them. Yeah. But I guess it's because fire is an inanimate object. No one can try to convince you that they're good or they just need de-escalation or something like that. It's just a, a black and white fire bad. Get it? Yeah. Yeah. As I was, I was looking at that, I saw that you're also a driver of the apparatus. What's that like? What is it like? And can you drive everything on the, on the fire department or only certain things? Yeah. So they do a driver training program where they start you with the uh, rescue or the squad. Um, which doesn't have any fire fighting equipment, basically. It's just a support piece. And then once you're comfortable in that, you advance to the engine, which has the hose and the water and stuff on it. And then when you're good on that one, you move to the truck, which is usually the longer one with the ladder. Okay. It takes a little bit more skill to drive and get used to that one just because of its size. So at this point, I'm signed off on all of them. So whenever a call goes out, I get to the station and whatever they need to drive, I'll hop on and drive. Okay. So. Now, how many at the department you work at, uh, the fire department you work at, how many drivers would a fire department have normally? So right now we have probably like seven or eight active drivers. Okay. Um, there are typically the older guys in the department just because they've, they've pe- moved past the running into the burning building part and they're just going to kind of get you there and get the water and all that good stuff. Um, and the way we do it, uh, we have on-call nights. So we have duty vehicles that you'll take home for the night. If you're on call that night, you're expected to show up. 
So if it's just a minor miscellaneous automatic fire alarm or something, it's at your night, you're going, but the other drivers can stay home. Okay. Uh, if it's something major, everybody shows up. Okay. And it's so, purely volunteer, right? Yep. It's all volunteer. That's, that's an amazing thing. I, I don't know if it's like that in most areas, but here in Lancaster County, all our fire departments are volunteer except maybe, well, Lancaster City is not yeah. volunteer. And then I think there's maybe one other department that has Manheim some paid Township members. has some paid okay. members. Uh, I don't really know any others than the city and Manham Township. Does Eden Eden Fire Company have some paid? Maybe? I think they're part of Manham Township. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That would make sense. Yep. Yeah. I I saw that you, you know, I I I like to give firefighters a hard time. The reason <laughs> I like to give firefighters a hard time is I remember we would have accidents or scenes in the city. We would get there, and I everything would be calm and under control. Like I didn't need any anyone else there. And uh, I would try to get dispatch to just cancel the fire department, but you you can't. Yeah. The fire department will not cancel um, in the city. So they would get there and block streets, and there would be fire trucks everywhere and people, you know. And I just I would just be like, I was trying to keep this small scale <laughs> and 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 uh, calm, and you know, but. Here's the thing. They they do what they do. And I was very, very happy to see the fire department on a lot of my calls because their medical training far um, outperformed us when it came to medical stuff. Uh, So it was always good to have them on medical calls and and accidents and stuff when when we needed them. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, I had this uh, field training officer when I was in the department and he... I don't think the fire departments do this anymore. They used to have those like signal beepers that would give like a signal. Like, oh, yeah. Each department had a had a different signal. So this was something I didn't even realize that uh, they don't do that anymore. It's all by phone. Now. No, we so we still have those, and we have the phone, the text dispatch, but we also still have the pagers, um, which is a tone combination, like signals out there with two co- tones, and then your pager will go off. And it drives my wife nuts because it'll literally, it's so loud. It just, in the middle of the night when it goes off, you'll just jump out of bed. Right. You know, so I always try to turn it down if I remember. Right. Um, but there, it's funny with technology, most things get smaller. These pagers over the 20 years, I guess you could say, off and on, I've been in the fire service, have gotten bigger. Really? You know, so it's, yeah. they're Do like you know little. Com- I have no idea. They're computers. They're little mini computers on your belt, but they're just a pager. Okay. But they're very big and bulky. I don't even carry it that often unless I'm on a duty weekend or something like right. that. So it's kind of a backup. Yeah. So I, my FTO knew the thing that was amazing to me. First of all, I didn't know that each fire department had its own tone. Yeah. So I, I didn't, I, he, he told me this and then he knew he could hear a tone and he knew exactly which fire department. Yep. It was. And I thought that was pretty uh Yeah. Crazy. If you've been around long enough, you start to pick it up. Okay. And then you can definitely I guess kind of freak people out when they when you hear the tone, you can call it before it even dispatches it, you know. So Yeah. I'm, I'm not like that though. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. I I I mean, I've never had any desire to be on a fire department. Uh, well, that's not true. When I was a teenager, I thought about it because I thought it would be cool to put a blue light on my car and drive yeah. like a maniac through the town, <laughs> yeah. but I never did it. Uh, but I, me and my son, we, we, we love big trucks and like the idea of being able to 
drive something that big is cool. The closest I ever got was driving an ambulance. Yeah. I, I was at a scene one time where a uh, lady was just badly beaten and, and they needed everyone in the back of the ambulance to, to work on her. And they asked me to drive the ambulance to the hospital. So that, yeah. That was pretty awesome, though. I'm not yeah, gonna lie; I, yeah. it was fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was also terrified that I was gonna wreck. Uh huh. Yeah. it. That would not be good. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they do that anymore. I think you're pretty hard pressed to have them let an officer drive a do drive we, an ambulance. We do it from time to time if we're on a, a cardiac arrest or something, and okay. we're the hospital's pretty close to where we're at usually. So if one of us hops in and drives, they're usually okay with it. Gives them an extra hand in the back. Yeah. So yeah. Now you said uh, you told me earlier that uh, your your time in the fire department. When did when did you join the fire department? When did you? Volunteer? I joined in July of two thousand. Okay, kind of on a whim. I at that point in my life, I was like nineteen years old, and I just spent a year in college for business, and I realized like I hated it. Like my senior year in high school, I did all the business classes. College, I wanted to do business admin. Um, I did a year, I, I did not like it. So I kind of had to do the talk with my parents, like this isn't for me, uh, type stuff. And I was just kind of searching for something to get involved in. And I'd always been fascinated with the fire department, just kind of on a whim, went down on a Monday night when they hold their trainings and observed and joined. Um, and through that experience, got to know a lot of the local police officers, um, Ended up also getting my EMT license for a little bit. Worked as an EMS person for a little while. Um, it kind of saved money for the police academy. Ultimately, did some ride-alongs with the local officers, and that kind of kind of segued me into police work. So, when you say that the fire department was kind of your way into into law enforcement, that kind of um, that it was because you you had that contact them with law enforcement and and kind of developed a relationship with them. Yeah, the calls that we would go on, you know, vehicle accidents and and such, you just learn a lot from the local officers. You got to know their names, got to know them as people, um, and just kind of the more I was around them, the more I thought, oh, this is something I really think I would like to try and do. Um, and at that point too, I was so young, it was. It's like, oh, maybe I could be a career firefighter. Maybe I could be a police officer. You know, I just knew I didn't want to do business stuff anymore. Right. So, right. What helped you make the decision between law enforcement and fire department? Was there something that helped you make that decision then? So I had been working for a year or so with uh, an ambulance organization, and I became close friends with a, a bunch of different people at Lids Fire Department that were interested in being an officer or police officer. And one of the guys found out about a police academy, uh, Temple Police Academy, that had openings for uh, the next session. So he and I both applied and we both got accepted. Okay. And it was kind of, you know, I was saving and preparing for that, but I didn't expect it to come so soon. And it just kind of fell into my lap. And he and I both being from the area, we ended up getting an apartment down in Temple and going through the academy together. Okay. So it just kind of worked out. So you, you put yourself through the academy? Yeah. Then? Yep. Okay. And when you say Temple, you're talking like around Philly there? So the like branch campus was uh, Temper, Temple Ambler, which is outside in the suburbs. It wasn't in the city. The only time we actually went in the city for Temple was our graduation. Okay. So All other right. than that, it was in the suburbs. And th- 
that police academy, do you remember how long it was? How long you were six, in there? Six months. Okay. Yeah. All right. And what year was that? 2003. 2003. Yeah. So you got through the academy okay. And did, did the department you're with now, did, were you hired while you were in the academy? Or did you have to get out of the academy and then work on getting hired somewhere? So the guy I was with actually was hired by my department before he got in. I was not. And when I got out, I had a couple different offers and ended up taking a, an offer with uh, East Earl Department, uh, Police Department. I was there for literally three days when the department I'm with now called me and offered me a position. And I kind of I kind of had to. I mean, I felt really bad leaving uh, that quickly. And but where I was going to, you know, it was just a better a better deal. Okay. So, and when you say you had to leave and it was a better deal, just, just pay-wise, like what they were offering you? Just pay-wise, uh, my hometown, um, all of that. Gotcha. You know, shorter commute, like everything. Okay. Um, and uh, it's, you know, being with the fire department, I knew everyone and it was just a, everybody knew me and it was a good fit. Okay. So, so, the, so the department you work in, the jurisdiction you work in was also where you grew up at? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Did you have any family in law enforcement at all? No. Nope. No family. Nope. Okay. Um, just, um, I, I now my cousin is also an officer now, but prior to he and I, there was nobody in law enforcement in our family. Why so. do you, why do you think you were drawn to service oriented type things like the fire department, and the police department? I really, I wish I had a good answer. I really don't know. And I'm still that way, you know, 20 years later. Um, it's just, Something always struck me about the fire department and when I would pass by in town and I'd look and see the apparatus in the station, I was always curious. And then when I joined, it just, it just was, it, I guess, completed me to some extent because I just felt that sense of service and helping and all that good stuff and carried over into the police department side of things. Yeah. So, And you mentioned too that you, you really didn't want just a, uh, a normal desk job or, or something like that. No, I, in, in high school, I thought that's what I wanted. And that first year of college really showed me that's not what I wanted. Right. Um, I think the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life was go to my parents after one year of college and say, this really isn't for me and have to have to work through that. But in the end, it worked out. Yeah. So, so you never went back to college after that then? So I did a year then at Hack for criminal justice. Okay. Um, so I have two years of college. I don't have a degree. Uh, I keep saying I want to go back and just finish this couple credits and actually get a degree, but I never did it. Um, so, yeah, I, went, I did a year of criminal justice, then I did the ambulance full time to save money for the academy. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. I keep telling myself I'm going to go back and get my degree too. And I, I don't, yeah. I, I, I have a two year, two year associate's degree from hack, uh, in criminal justice. And then I did, uh, I went back a little bit, um, and started working towards a bachelor's, uh, in the, in the middle of my career. And then, uh, I met my wife, Lauren and I stopped and I've never gone back. I, yeah. I really, I don't like school, but yeah. I guess I try to keep that. It's one of those kids. things. I think if I just started it, and got into it, I would, it would be fine. But just getting to that point of starting it and getting back into that mode and finishing it, right? You know, it's a little difficult. Yeah. So then, when you got hired with the with the police department that you're with, were you married at that point? No. At that point, I 
I had a pretty serious girlfriend. We had been together for a couple of years. Um, but nothing, nothing too, I mean, we weren't engaged or anything and okay. we're pretty young. You yeah. Know, so. Yeah. And, and, uh, we were talking earlier about your kids. So no kids at that point either. No. So nope. This this is like this is one of those questions that I, I'm like oh man I don't know if it, so the girlfriend did that girlfriend turn into then wife or different? no so uh, okay. I I feel this is I feel really bad because uh, the girl I was with at that time she was with me through uh, all of the hardships of the academy and all of that stuff and supported me through it and then I had an incident my first year of police work where I, I crashed a police bike at, at around Christmas time and she had to get the call that I was in the hospital. And then she was also, we were still together when my shooting happened and she had to get woken up in the middle of the night. Um, and then after that, it just kind of dissolved from there. So okay. I, I always, I always feel bad cause I feel like I put her through a lot in a short period of time. Right. And then it didn't work out in the end. Wow. So. Wow. Do you think that is maybe uh, a blessing to a certain extent? Yeah, I would not trade where I'm where I'm at right yeah. now, obviously. Um, uh, firefighting, again, led me to my wife. Um, we do fire prevention weeks where we go to the elementary schools and visit the schools and do a talk for the kids and stuff like that. And shortly after my shooting, uh, we were doing another fire prevention week and my wife was a new teacher and just moved to the area and through fire prevention and giving her class the tour of the fire engine I met her and we've been together ever since yeah so do you think do you think it was helpful for you and your wife for her not to have to be with you when you went through that yes because uh, okay. that that whole all of that stuff is she hears me talk about it and we talk about it from time to time but she didn't live it and I wouldn't wish that upon anyone, you know, and for her, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, I guess. Right. Um, so, I mean, there's still obviously the fear that she has that it could happen again, um, but she didn't live through it the first time. So, right now before I, I do want to dive into the shooting, obviously, um, because it's super, you know, it's just a riveting story. Um, and I actually remember it, remember it because I was on the job when it happened. Um, but you said you wrecked a, a police bike. So <laughs> these are always great stories. It was, I, I had a year on the job. I got hired in November. Then I had my first Christmas. Then the next Christmas, uh, the town that I work in, it's always packed on weekends, tourists, et cetera, even back then. And I had gone through the bike officer school the year before. Um, and the bike officer was a former, or the bike training officer was a former Lancaster City officer. And uh, do the training. And Saturday afternoon, me and one other guy are working. Downtown is packed. We get an EMS call on Main Street of an elderly couple that fell through one of the big picture glass windows at one of the businesses, bleeding, etc. And I'm only two blocks away. And I'm on the bike. So I can get there very quickly. And I'm riding down a sidewalk and I go to enter the roadway and I'm looking for cars and pedestrians and traffic, et cetera. And as I go into the crosswalk on the road, I did not see a sewer grate that had the slots that were angled that had I been coming from the other direction, I would have literally just rolled right over it. 
But the direction I was coming from and the way I turned my tires, I my front tire went right down into the sewer grate. I flipped right over the handlebars and completely knocked myself out <laughs> in front of all these people that were downtown. Uh, just they, I mean, they all came rushing to me. My partner had to leave the other call to come tend to me. The only thing I remember is getting the call, pedaling a little bit, and then waking up in the back of the ambulance okay. with the sirens going. Wow. Uh, and I recognized the paramedic because I had worked with him, you know, so it just, and then I got to the hospital. And in the emergency department, the wife of the bike training officer was my nurse in the hospital. And of course, she had to give me a couple jabs because her husband apparently didn't teach me good enough in the week of bike school uh, that I ended up in the hospital. So and embarrassing. Yes, I learned a little bit, you know, but it was... How know, long were you in the hospital? Uh, just overnight for okay. observation. I mean, I was fine. It just... Because I rung your bell, rung my bell a little bit. They kept me overnight just to make sure I was good to go. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I wrecked a bike one time and I wrecked it in the, uh, at the time, the biggest drug, um, intersection and drug corner in our jurisdiction. And I, I, I felt, I, I don't even remember what I did. I think I hit a curb or something and wrecked right in front of a, some drug dealers. And that was <laughs> very embarrassing. Yeah. And they were actually, they were actually pretty decent about it. They were like, yeah, you all right. Yeah, it's probably because they had like eight balls of crack uh, on them or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that, so that happened. And then, like I said, in, in the opening, um, you know, 15 years ago, a little over 15 years ago, November of 2005, correct, is when you had your shooting. And at that point, you only had two years on the department, right? Yeah, it was just just a couple of days shy of my two year anniversary. Okay, uh, so what uh what led you to have interaction with this this suspect? So that that I'll just kind of start with that night. Um, there was myself, uh, my partner from my department, and another depart another officer from the neighboring department, and we worked together. And the warrant for this guy had been um, out there for a couple of weeks. And it was a Monday night and we were just kind of like bored, you know, we said, let's try to serve this, see if we can get him. We kind of had a pattern because we had been trying to figure out when he comes and when he goes and he didn't keep normal hours and stuff. And at that time, our district justices were always on call too. And our district justice that night was our local district justice. And we'd already heard if we get this guy, call him and he'll come in and he'll do the arraignment and stuff like that. So we're like, okay. So we met. We just kind of came up with a little bit of a game plan. We knew where the house was, uh, knew where we could kind of sit in our cruisers and watch from different angles and stuff like that. Uh, we had an idea of what kind of vehicle he was driving. And that night, it was a Monday night football game, um, Tom Brady versus Peyton Manning. So we're listening to it in the cars where three of us are in different areas of the neighborhood. and. We kind of assumed that when the game was over, he'd probably be coming home just because we kind of had a little idea uh, his routine. And this is obviously before social media and Facebook and everything else where you can gather pretty good information. Um, so sure enough, 1230, 12, uh, we see his truck pull into the road and his house was right basically as soon as you make the turn onto the road the driveway for his house was right there. 
And where I happened to be sitting, I could see him coming before anyone else. So we were on our attack channel, and I radioed. I said, here, here he comes. And our plan, because what led to the warrant, uh, the previous officer that interacted with him, he fought with and, and escaped. So, so what was the warrant for exactly? The warrant was for DUI and resisting arrest. Okay. So three weeks prior to this warrant service, one of our officers sees this guy run a stop sign, tries to pull him over. A little bit of a pursuit entails. Um, the officer pulls in behind him in his driveway. Guy gets out, tries to take off running. Officer gives foot pursuit. They fought for a little bit, and he tried to pepper spray him, but it didn't really work. He could smell alcohol in his breath and all that good stuff, and uh, he ended up getting away. Um, so they ended up filing charges on him for the DUI resisting arrest and fleeing and eluding and three weeks later there we are thinking that it's just a dui resisting arrest you know warrant um and when when he pulled in his driveway pulled forward and we kind of boxed him in with our three police cars and i happened to be the first one to run up to the driver's door and as I ran up to the driver's door, I could see him hit the lock on the, on the door. He could see us, obviously, behind him right? and knew. So we gave him a couple of warnings uh, to unlock the door and come out. And I was kind of behind the driver's door, blading myself, you know, small target stuff. Right. There was an officer right behind me, and there was an officer on the other side on the passenger uh, window, basically, like, looking in, you know, looking at his hands and all that good stuff. and. It got to the point where we knew he wasn't going to unlock the door and we were going to have to forcibly get in. So I pulled my baton and I'm sort of ambidextrous. Like I throw baseball, shoot hockey, all this stuff right-handed, but my gun hand is my left hand. Okay. So I'm still bladed away and I take my baton with my right hand and I, and I broke out the driver's side window. And what happened in those moments is the window spiderwebbed and didn't disintegrate. So you couldn't see. I couldn't see. And there's a lot of lessons that we learned from this. And uh, the, the officer on the passenger side, kind of in the heat of the moment when we're breaking the window, shuffles around to our side or starts to. And nobody has eyes on his hands. I can't see his hands because the window is spiderwebbed. So I kind of reached in with my baton and started to clear the window. And that's when I felt like the wind get knocked out of me. And there's a lot of things that go on in those moments. Like I look back on it and I can remember every little detail, but there's certain things where like, as far as the shots, like he fired two shots at me, one hit me, one did not, but I couldn't tell you if I heard him. I I just, it's, I knew what had happened. My mind processed everything like so quickly um, and I realized what was going on and you just kind of act, you know, and I knew I had cover officers. I knew I'd been hit. So I retreated and I know they were firing back and things that kind of in slow motion. And I ended up running probably 20, 20 yards or so down the street 
like behind cover basically, or what I thought was going to be behind cover until I eventually just kind of passed out. Um, wind was knocked out of me. I couldn't breathe. Um, pain in my arm, that type of stuff. And I remember when I got to the intersection, there was another, there was a fourth officer that was working. Uh, he was nearby, but he wasn't really participating in the war. And I can remember seeing his cruiser coming up the road. I'm calling out that I'm hit, uh, you know, officer, officer down, all that stuff. Somehow my radio got bumped to a completely different channel. I wasn't on the normal channel that I was supposed to be on. County radio had no idea what was going on. And I remember the female dispatcher saying, identify yourself. And I did. And then I just kind of laid back on the street. And it was cold. It was November. Like, everything was cold. And I looked up at the sky. You know, you see the stars. And then I don't remember opening my eyes again until hours later. Like, the pain, the shock, whatever you want to call it. But I kind of re- I remember laying there. And as I'm closing my eyes, you kind of wonder, I wondered, like, is this it? You know, like, I couldn't breathe. This, there's a lot going on. And then, you know, however long later, the two, the, well, the three officers now that were there with me, when they returned fire, they thought they struck the guy and killed him. And truth be told, the shots that they fired were all directly at him, but between the glass or the metal of the vehicle, the seat, the dashboard, the windshield, all of the shots would have hit him directly, but they were all stopped before they even got to him. So they returned fire and then come to render aid to me. They scooped me up, put me in the back of a police car, and took me to the closest hospital, which at the time was the heart of Lancaster. Um, they had called ahead, so they were kind of waiting for me. I can remember them dragging me into the ER and put me on a on a gurney, I guess. And I ch- I'll back up with my eyes. I remember opening my eyes at this point. As I'm on the gurney, I can feel them taking all of my stuff off. Uh, my duty belt, my bulletproof vest, everything. And I can feel somebody straddle me, like get on top of me and straddle me. And then I feel hands on my chest and two like really abrupt like pumps on my chest as if like they're getting ready to do CPR. And I remember I opened my eyes and I'm like, and I yelled, I'm like, what the f- are you doing? And it was this doctor who's straddling me. And I look up at him and he looked at me and it was like, <laughs> like, I think he thought I was dead like right. or something. I don't know. Uh, but he quick hopped off and. I ended up meeting with him later and thanking all of them for, for what they did for me. And he, he explained that he was a, sir, or a, a ER doctor in Detroit in a bad section. They would have shooting victims all the time. And it was the cardiac thump that he was trying to do to me is what he used to do in Detroit. And that was just the way he was trained and stuff. You know? what, a, what is a cardiac thump? A thing that they do where if, you, if you're heart is stopped or it's out of rhythm, if you take a sudden blow to the chest or the heart, it'll kind of kickstart it or restart it, is what has been explained to me. So okay. I don't know. I mean, in my EMS years, I don't recall that, um, but hey, I'm still here. So, yeah. You know, um, 
So when you when you lost consciousness, then you, so there's like moments where you remember certain things. Then yeah. obviously, because yeah. you remember going in the hospital, and then were you back out then? So in the they, hospital or they the first hospital isn't a trauma hospital. So the ambulance that was dispatched to take care of me at the scene went to the hospital, and they loaded me up in a stretcher to take me to Lancaster General, and. I remember a lot of that ambulance ride because the paramedic and I were really close friends. And I kept saying to him, like, take the pain away, take the pain away, you know, because I'm obviously in a lot of pain. And uh, he just kept saying, like, hang in there. We'll get you there. We're almost there. Like, just calming me down, basically, and, and all that. And when we got into, the, into LGH, um, I just remember, a, like, a ton of people's voices. And things beeping and just like, I'm sure it was controlled chaos, you know, um, but it was just so much going on. And throughout this whole ordeal, and I, I share this story with everyone, throughout the whole ordeal, like obviously getting shot hurt and it felt like the wind was knocked out of me. My arm, you know, was in a lot of pain. But the worst part of the whole situation was my right lung was filling up with blood from having a hole in it from the bullet going through that far. And they did a chest tube on me in the trauma bay of the ER where they, they do a quick incision and jam that tube through your ribs into your lung to be able to help you to breathe. Mm-hmm. And as it, it, I'd been witness to those several times in my EMS career. And it just looked horrific. And when I heard them talking about that, like I knew what was coming. Like I'm still, I'm not opening my eyes, but I can hear what's going on. Right. And they, I remember them saying, okay, we'll count the three, one, two. And on two is when they did it. They sliced and put it in at the same time. It hurt so bad. But within a few seconds, I could breathe again. Because all of that, the blood that was in there was starting to flow out and I could, my lung could open up and expand and all that good stuff. So I appreciate you talking about this because, um, I don't, I don't know how many people, I mean, I can tell it's not the easiest thing to talk about. And, and, uh, I don't, I don't think a lot of people, you know, realize the, how hard it is to talk about sometimes stuff like this. Um, but I wanted to back up a little bit when you when you got up to uh, the truck and and you know you were giving him commands and stuff. How how much time had passed between you giving him commands, seeing him lock the window, you breaking the window? How how much time are we talking? Probably not more than a few seconds, maybe thirty seconds or so. Okay, um, we we found out a lot of information about him after the fact, but at that moment we just assumed he was just a runner basically and had a misdemeanor DUI warrant. So it wasn't like we had guns drawn and all that stuff. Initially it was just a, let's get him out, hook him up, take him to the judge's office. Um, And when he locked the door, we just figured, okay, he's just, he's not going to go willingly. Okay. We'll take the window, get him, haul him out however we need to. 
so we gave him several commands to unlock the unlock the door and I told him I'm going to break the window if you don't unlock the door and in that time frame he's just buying time like he already knew what he was going to do or what he had to do and we didn't know that um and we now know like after I broke that window he reached down along his door where his, it was a 38 uh, was in the door panel and all he did was reach down with his right arm to grab that and kind of come across his chest and shoot up at an angle at me. Um, okay. And where did the bullet enter then? So the bullet entered my right arm um, just below my shoulder and the trajectory of it took it through an angle that um, hit, hit my, my ribs, broke two of my ribs and then went through my lung on my right side. And it ended up being in between my spine and my heart. So they actually tried in surgery later on to try to get it out, but they couldn't get to it. And where it's at is kind of a critical area. If they make one mistake, it could interrupt my spine or my heart. So it's still in me. They, it's surrounded now by muscle mass and stuff. But okay. it, it traveled through that far. Um, and again, it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's, I, I joke sometimes, you know, when I, when I talk to my friends and coworkers about it, like, had I just squared up to them, uh, it probably would have hit me in the vest, you know, but I'm trying to make myself a small target and blade it. And he ended up just hitting me in the right arm and it went right through and all that stuff. Yeah. That armpit area of your, of your vest and stuff is, um, one of the most dangerous areas. They they talk about that. If if it, if it gets you right there in that armpit area yep. or right between your panels, yeah. uh, those can be devastating shots. So, did you know immediately you were shot, or was there like a, a brief moment of just confusion about what had happened? It was it. I mean, and it in the. I mean, I'm just fascinated of how your mind works in a critical situation like that because you process so much right so quickly, and you know, like. The flash, the pain, you just, I just recognize what had happened. And I'm not ashamed to admit, too, it's the, they talk about the fight or flight response. When in that moment, like, I know there's two other officers there with me. I know I'm in trouble and I bailed. Like, I, I suck. I went for cover and, you know, and they took care of, or we, I mean, we thought they, right. they obviously returned fire and thought they took care of the threat. Um, so did they have trouble finding you? Cause you said you ran for quite a distance. What did you say? About 20 yards or yeah, so? Yeah, I ran past my cruiser and down towards the next intersection a little bit. And I was just trying to get like, like distance basically. And I, I just got winded and kind of didn't make it as far as I was hoping to go. Right. You know? And I, I could see the other officer and the fourth officer, his car coming up the street. Um, so I was kind of, in my mind, hoping to reach him, and I just I couldn't. Okay, so he pro- he saw you as he was pulling up. Then yeah. Okay. And as it's interesting because as he was pulling up, um, he was hearing the two other officers who were on the northeast channel talking about officer or shots fired, uh, officer down, stuff like that. Um, so he, as he's pulling up, sees me running and then realizes everything that's going on. Yeah. When you, um, when you were laying there, uh, you said you were looking up at the stars and you were wondering if this is it. 
like how do you how do you deal with with that that thought like i mean i'm not exactly sure what i'm trying to ask i i'm trying to help people understand what that's like to to be in that moment where you think you might not make it can you can you speak to that at all like when you had that thought like is this it was there a thought that followed that then it's or did you, you just pass out yeah i mean you hear people talk about like their whole life flashed before their eyes for me that didn't really happen i i mean i knew i was in trouble um i knew i was having a hard time breathing i could see the blood coming out of my my jacket down in my hand and you know, I'm just laying there on the cold pavement and looking up and I just, you know, it's just, is this it? And then there was nothing more beyond that other than my eyes, I closed and it was shock or, or whatever. I can remember them picking me up and putting me in the back of the cruiser, flying me to the hospital, all of that stuff. But it was like a kind of just a fog. Right. Um, so yeah. Was there a point at the hospital where you where you felt like okay, I'm 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 going to make it. I'm good. I think after they did the chest tube and I could breathe again, I felt a sense of relief. And again, like I mean, I'd had a limited medical background. I'm not a nurse or a doctor obviously, but with just a little bit of information I knew from training and being an EMT, like I knew that was a pretty big part of it. Um I didn't know the extent of how bad it would be, you know, if it would be bad going forward, but I knew I could breathe again. So I, I felt some reassurance that, okay, if they can get me stable, like I have a pretty good chance. Right. So, and then how long were you in the hospital then? I was in the hospital for eight days. Um, three days into it, they decided to do surgery on my right lung just cause I had a blood clot developing that was kind of critical. So they went in and took care of that. That's also when they tried to follow the path of the bullet and tried to get it out, but they, they couldn't. Yeah. So. Um, any, any ongoing like physical things from, from that, from the shooting the, that you have to deal with? Where the bullet entered my arm, it nicked the nerve that controls my thumb and my index finger and my middle finger on my right hand. So I have a constant like uh, numbness and sometimes tingling in those three fingers. And when the weather's cold, it's their circulation isn't as good. So they, they get a little, uh, it, it hurts a little bit more, but it's honestly, I just, I just kind of forget about it sometimes. It's just there. And I'm just kind of used to it at this point. Um, after you recovered, how how soon were you back on the job then? So I, I just a month prior to the shooting, I'd gone through the Dare Instructor School. Uh, so the plan was for me to do the Dare program from January to April in the elementary schools. So I came back to basically light duty in April, and did the last couple of weeks of the Dare program. And then in June is when I came back to full duty. Okay. So six, seven months basically afterwards. And when you came back to full duty, you're, you're back on patrol. What was that first shift like back on the street? So it's interesting. My first shift back on the street was actually my birthday. 
And well, happy just, birthday. It, well, yeah. So <laughs> I just, it was kind of one of, I don't know, I mean, it's, it might sound weird, I guess, but it was just kind of one of those, like, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like I came back to work on my birthday. Like I almost didn't have that birthday, yeah. you know? So it was kind of a unique thing. And I remember just getting back in the car and doing like the whole normal routine and it just felt good to be back, you know? And the, the nice thing too is nobody in my department made like a big deal about it. You know what I mean? It wasn't like a, it just, everybody just treated me like normal. It wasn't, there was no pressure on me. There was no, it was just like, Hey, welcome back, you know? And, and I just kind of got back into it. So. Did you have a lot of people from the department uh, reaching out to you at, right after it happened? Did oh, yeah. you have a lot of support there? Yeah. Um, between friends, uh, family, coworkers, fire department people. Um, I had, I think it was three or four months where every other night somebody was bringing me a meal. Wow. Uh, or bringing me and my girlfriend a meal. And um, it, you know, I didn't have to worry about raking the leaves in my house. Like my yard cares, like just so many people reached out and did so many things over those months. And I just always had support from tons of people. Yeah. It was just a great, I mean, obviously the situation was horrible, but the aftermath with the community support and friends, family, everything, it was great. Right. And, uh, you said, so when you came back, you said it felt great, like getting back into the routine getting your cruiser set up going out was there was there any anxiety or any foreboding there at all for you or were you just pretty much raring to go i i mean i look back on it and i was just young and raring to go and um there was i don't remember there being any real issues at all i just kind of just kind of went back back and got back into my thing and rolled with it so yeah i do we we would joke uh, occasionally whenever we'd have a warrant service or something like that effect, I'd always joke like, I'm not going first this time, you know, and, and we all <laughs> joke about it, you know? Right. Do you think it helped you that you only had about two years on the job when it happened? Or do you think that was like a hindrance to how everything went down? I think it helped me being that young and just really, really wanting to like answer what I thought my life's calling is in being in law enforcement. Um, if that same thing were to happen to me again at this age with a family and kids and, and kind of the dynamic right now, I would probably, probably medically retire or something to that effect. I don't think I would risk coming back after something like that. Yeah. How, how close, like I, I, maybe you haven't been told this, but how close did you come to, to dying? Like how, how close were you? The medical staff, they've showed me when well, they've, they've explained to me too, the x-rays, the bullet and where it's at, like a, a smidge in one direction, it would have hit the heart and I'd be gone or it would have hit the spine and I'd be paralyzed. So it's just, it's almost impossible to think how bad things could have gone. And the fact that I'm still here, obviously, right. And able to do all the things that I'm able to do and how different that could have been in just a little bit of a different direction, depending on how far different that bullet went in. Right. 
So yeah, it's I mean it's it's a pretty pretty and pretty incredible. I'm trying to think of a politically correct word for someone who shoots at a police officer. Um, I I used to I would call them mutants. That's usually what I would call uh, people like that. But what did uh, what did you guys find out about this guy afterwards that you didn't know when you were going into it? So we found out a lot. Um, the vehicle that was involved in the first pursuit if you want to call it that, um, the officers that were working that night, um, they didn't catch him obviously, but they decided to impound that vehicle. And at the time that was within our department policy and the way things were, we could do that. Um, but what they failed to do is do an inventory search of that vehicle, which was also department policy at that time. And obviously, it would have changed things drastically. But that vehicle, that first vehicle, was not searched until after I was shot. And what they found out when they um, searched that first vehicle was several guns, uh, cocaine, and cash. And later on, even further into it, that vehicle um, matched the description of an outstanding case that happened in another jurisdiction uh, involving road rage where the male driver uh, got upset with somebody and shot through their car and struck the two-year-old in the back seat. And that two-year-old was struck in the leg with the bullet, um, made a full recovery and everything else, but they couldn't figure out who it was at first. They actually, um, from eyewitnesses, ended up charging the wrong person initially, which kind of took all the all of the heat, so to speak, off of the guy that ended up shooting me. So the puzzles or the pieces of the puzzle started to click together after all this stuff happened with me and my incident, and they ended up doing ballistic testing on the weapons that were found in that first vehicle, which matched the ballistic evidence from the road rage shooting of the two-year-old. Uh, then they obviously found out he was a, like a low-level cocaine dealer. Um, so, you know, hindsight, we that night are serving a warrant for what we think is a misdemeanor DUI fleeing and eluding. But what we didn't know was that he had already shot at somebody before he knew he was wanted for that. Well, he wasn't wanted, but he knew he had done that. He could probably assume that we would have found the guns and drugs that were in the first initial car. But again, we didn't know that. Um, so he obviously knew there was a lot to lose or what he thought was a lot to lose. Right. We just didn't know any yeah. of that that night. Um, so that was that was a little difficult for me to swallowed to some extent because i'm not one to like hold grudges but it's kind of obviously what happened to me could have been different you know if if that if we would have known some of that information right um did you ever have words with that officer or those officers that that kind of cut that corner and didn't do that no i didn't i mean it's again it's not i don't know i don't it's always in the back of my mind like i can't officially let it go 
because it's affected my life like permanently. Um, but it's it's something where, you know, I can't hold that against them. You know, it's not their fault. He shot me, you know? Right. So, um, it's just, sometimes it works out that way, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think you, I think you make a, a couple good points, um, regarding, you know, sometimes I hear people say, well, why, why do the police have to do it this way? You know, they're treating, this is a low level warrant. Uh, why do they have to take these steps or uh, look so militaristic or have a shield with them or, or take these, take these precautionary steps? And I think, you know, what you're describing is kind of like a cautionary tale for newer officers that Regardless, and this is something I would I would tell my my uh, people in my patrol shifts. Regardless of the warrant you're serving, you don't. I mean, we we only have limited information going in, and you know, talking to you, you know, you definitely wish you would have had more information going in, and uh, you alluded to it when you were when when you were telling the story that you guys learned things from that incident and wish you would have done things differently uh, in the moment. And uh, so I think it's it's a good reminder, you know, for for any officers that are listening to this, uh, to make sure that when you do a warrant service, you're doing it as safely as possible. This is something I would, you know, preach to my guys all the time. And it also I think it's helpful for people who don't do the job to understand why the police operate and do things in a certain way, even when in their minds it's not that big of a deal. This guy isn't that bad of a guy. Well, it can quickly go south, and when it does go south, it's within milliseconds, and it is usually not expected. Um, so I, I think I think you make a good point about that, and I think that you also make a great point about just personal responsibility in these situations. Yeah, obviously the officers that didn't search a car made a mistake and and could have done a better job, uh, but the responsibility for the action against you and uh, you being shot lies solely with with that suspect, and I think that's a really good point that you that you made. Yeah. So physical recovery, you get through that. Um, you you get back on the job. Did you have any lingering, uh, you know, recovery that had to do with uh, mental health, or or was there was there a struggle with that, or were you? Yeah, I've heard some people say, you know, stuff like that did not affect them. You know, they, they went in, they were prepared for it mentally. They came out pretty much unscathed. Was that your story or did you have a little bit of more There's of a kind of a, a couple things with that. I, I had to go through the mental health psycho- psychologist uh, talks and stuff. And I was physically ready to come back long before they would mentally sign off on me, the psychologist. And what was frustrating for me through that process was like I had to drive to Westchester to talk to this psychologist once a week. And I felt kind of, I don't want to say like betrayed, but the, the chief at the time basically ordered me that I had to go down there and do this once a week. So every week for six months, I had to drive to Westchester for, you know, it took an hour to get there. And I would talk to this guy who like, he was a nice guy, but he had no police experience, and it was just like 
it was like nails on the chalkboard is the best way I can describe it. It was, I didn't want to be there. He could tell I didn't want to be there. Um, I didn't really have much else to say. Like I have no problem talking about the incident. I don't have nightmares about it or flashbacks or any of that other stuff. Right. And it was just kind of like, dude, the more I talk to you, the more, the more I get frustrated, you know? And he, at that time, like I was a, a young, a young guy. I had been through a couple of different things. My girlfriend at the time, we were kind of on the brink of, okay, do we take the next step or, or not? And we ended up spending more time at the psychologist's office talking about my relationship at the time than anything to do with the shooting. And it just frustrated me. Um, and I probably would have been able to come back to work a lot sooner had it not been for him week after week, like delaying and saying, he's not ready. He's not ready. He's not ready. It's like, well, I'm, I can tell you I'm ready. Like I'm fine. So, so the, the doctor was saying this. Yes. And did the, he give you a reason why? No, no. And it just, it, and he, and the chief, our chief obviously had to go with, with what he said, you know? So, uh, my medical doctor, um, for my injuries and stuff, like I've, I did the physical therapy I could pass all the physical tests that were needed to be done. My medical family medical doctor signed off. Um, I was good to go, but the psychologist um, kept me coming week after week for a couple months after physically I was, I was good to go. And I just, as a young guy, I, I just kind of wanted to get back into, you know, doing what I wanted to do. And it got very frustrating. Do you think it was good that you were, that your department ordered you to to go and do something you just wished it would have looked differently? Yeah, I mean it was definitely good to go talk to the psychologist and you know express things and feelings and you know talk through some stuff. Um but after a while it just got to the point for me personally to have to drive down there every week and talk about my relationship for an hour every week and drive an hour back going, why did I just drive an hour down here to talk to this guy for an hour? Um, and then still not be clear to come back to work. Right. So it was just, it, the longer that part of it went on, the, the more I got frustrated. Yeah. Cause uh, you're, you're basically have no control over the process. It's no. just based on, you know, what the doctor says and, and yeah. uh, things of that nature. I always thought it was good that departments, you know, forced by policy, you know, their guys to do it. Because I think if the departments didn't, guys would be like, no, I'm fine. Um, and, and, uh, and then wouldn't go. And, and I think it's good, even if it just gives them a couple more weeks or a month or whatever to like just get their mind right before they, before they get back on the street. Um, I think it's good. But, at some point, yeah, it just turns into a, a yeah. negative experience. Yeah, which it sounds like it did for did for you. And I remember, I mean, too, the second part of that, I guess. I even to this day, I've never had nightmares or flashbacks. I mean, the only time that I ever had something even close to that was in 2013. I was working a 3 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift, and the night shift guy at 3.15, got a call for an emotional person who ended up coming at him with a knife, and he had to shoot and kill the guy. And 
our department, you know, people are calling each other and stuff. So I, I couldn't sleep after that. And I felt somewhat guilty because I literally just left at three o'clock. My shift was over and I missed it basically by 15 minutes. He fought by himself until he had no other recourse. And I remember falling asleep at some point, six, seven o'clock in the morning. And that day, uh, I had like a dream where it was my shooting like in vivid detail all over again. Uh, just like everything happened again. And then I woke up and I was fine. It wasn't like I was scared or, or upset or anything like that. It just, it was like something about what he went through for whatever reason triggered in my mind that when I finally did fall asleep, it brought back all the stuff from my shooting. And I had that really vivid dream. Like I was back, back in that moment again. Right. So, yeah. Now, do you generally, do you, do you think about it on a regular basis? I mean, is this something that you think about every day? Like I talk, you know, you talk to some people and they're like every single day at some point during the day, I think about it. I don't, I don't think I think about the shooting itself every day. But I do think about the fact that, like, I was very close to death. And it's not something I would wish on anyone, but I think it's a benefit to people who have had a near death experience that appreciate life a little bit more and are willing to fight a little bit harder for things in, in their life, you know? So there's moments throughout my day where especially with kids and seeing them grow and do things that I'm, you know, a proud parent. And I'm just, I'm just thankful that I'm still here. Right. Um, so and how, how does like, do you have an example of that fight manifesting itself? Like just that, that drive to, Hey, I've been given the gift of a longer life. Do you have like an example of, of that manifesting itself and how you fight or how you I just, operate? I see things, um, you know, sometimes there'll be, you know, like any department, there'll be issues that come up and I will, I'm the guy that'll say like, well then say something or, or fight for it. You know, like don't just let it go, like bring it up, you know, or, or whatever you want to do or, you know, things with my, my kids, if they're having situation or, you know, an, an issue with anything, I'll just be like, well, work for it, you know, fight for it, you know, go get it that type of stuff. Yeah. So that, uh, that survival mindset is, is, uh, is powerful. And then when you've been through something like that and you can speak with passion to that on your kid's behalf or on, uh, you know, the grumblers on your department that just want to, uh, grumble, complain about everything. Uh, it could be a lot worse, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, and, you know, I think that's a good, yeah, it's a good point. It gives you a, a good example to set for other people. What happened to that mutant? <laughs> so he, after the other officers tend to me and take me to the hospital, the two officers that remained at the scene went back to check the vehicle that he was in, and he wasn't there. And they had assumed, because he, he was right there in front of his house, that he had made his way back into his house. So they had called for the CERT team. Um, waves of officers showed up. Uh, all the helicopters, like all that stuff that I've heard stories about. What we didn't realize is in the chaos, he actually had a relative that lived a few blocks away. 
and he ran to his relative's house in the middle of the night. She ended up giving him a ride to a property in the southern end of Lancaster County in uh, Drewmore Township. And it was a family farm type property. And he hid out there until the next day. And the U.S. Marshals, uh, Lancaster City, PSP, uh, they all had intelligence that he was possibly there. So they ended up driving down the long farm lane. And until they started driving down, he had emerged from a barn on the property until they could step out and order him to do anything. He had turned and drawn on them with a weapon. And there was two of them that were already ready to fire at him. And then the other two who were driving hopped out and, and returned fire too. So he was struck multiple times and died on the scene. Okay. Uh, none of the other officers were injured at that point. Did he so, fire any shots at them uh, during I, that? Or did he just draw, draw on them? I'm not exactly, okay. not exactly sure on that. Yeah. Uh, I do. He was hit, I think, six or seven times by them. Um, when they fired on him, so. Yeah. My memory is so poor. I, you know, 2000, this was 2005, correct? Correct, yeah. yeah. So I would have, I would have, I know where I was in the department uh, at Lancaster City. I remember uh, your shooting. I vaguely remember, because I think some of our city guys were out Lancaster City guys were out that scene at that farm. Yeah, because um, probably probably like some CERT SWAT team guys, and and uh, I remember the U.S. Marshals and stuff. Uh, but yeah, I just I don't. I wish I could remember more about you know who was involved in that and and how that how that went down. So another thing I wanted to uh, to ask you about is you uh, you mentioned this crazy <laughs> story involving a child choking and a 10 stake uh, that you told me about, which is insane. So break, break that down for us. So I, it was uh, Saturday or Sunday. It was just me and another officer working. And we got dispatched to a choking. And the dispatcher said a child choking on an object. I couldn't breathe. And I wasn't too far away from where it was, where it was happening. So till I got there and came running in through the door. Mom was there and there were two other kids and then the patient who four years old, um, they were all excited. Mom had bought a slip and slide and they were taking it out of the box, trying to figure everything out in the house. And there was the little plastic spikes that you hammer into the ground to keep the slip and slide in place in the backyard. Right. And they're little plastic like tent stakes. Um, they're pointy on one end and they're flat on the other. And the flat end has a little, little tiny hook for like the cord and stuff. And when I got inside, again, mom's freaking out. The two other kids are crying and the kid on the ground is turning blue. And I, obviously he's in distress. So I can see the tent stake sticking out of his mouth, the pointy end sticking out. And it's obvious he can't breathe. He's choking on it. And I just kind of scooped him up and held on to him. And I was trying to figure out a way if I could get this tent spike out of his mouth. And no matter what I did, it would not come out. But I realized pretty quickly if I moved it in one direction, it almost acted like a valve, like it was cutting off his windpipe. 
So if I moved it in a direction, he could get air. So as I, as I figure this out, I'm holding on to him and pulling this tent stake thing a little bit so he can breathe again. He starts to get color back. Uh, he's still, uh, he's obviously worked up, but I'm just kind of like, all right, buddy, calm down. You know, just trying to calm him down and talking to him about try breathing deep breaths, like get the air back and all that stuff. And, uh, I could hear my partner, his siren, I like pulling up. I knew he was close. He, I'd heard him on the radio and, uh, I just went outside as he's coming to the door and I'm like, I'm just going to hold on to him. This thing's blocking his airway. And I, I know how to keep it open. And uh, I was like, I'm just going to wait for the ambulance. We're just going to go. And I could hear the ambulance coming too. So he went and kind of calmed mom down. And the other kids said, you know, get ready to go to the hospital, all that good stuff. The ambulance pulls up. And I, I don't even think they put it in park yet. And I'm basically lightly jogging with this kid in my arms to the back of the ambulance. And the ambulance person that came out of the door, I knew her from you know, previous experience and stuff. And I was like, look, we need to just go the way I have this thing uh, right now. He can breathe. But if we, if I move it, he cuts off his airway. And she's like, you know what? Let's okay. That's fine. Let's go. Let's just sit on the litter and we're just going to go. So I just held the kid the whole way to the hospital. And initially he's blue and he's all worked up and, and all that good stuff. And so I kept holding him and pulled that stake that way. And just talking with him calmly and everything until we got to the hospital, which again is only like a mile or two away. He was calm and just kind of okay for having a tent stake sticking out of his mouth. But um, I carried him into the ER then and they later figured out the flat end obviously went in first and the little hook that's on the flat end of those things actually hooked around his tonsil. It's incredible. And it wouldn't that's why it wouldn't come out. So they had to go in there and with surgical tools and stuff and get this thing dislodged and get it out. And then he was completely fine after that. Yeah. Um but it's just I talk I joke all the time, the planets aligned. Well the planets aligned for that one. I mean the kid they literally just unboxed this thing. The kid takes the stake and starts running through the house, trips and falls it goes in his mouth and gets lodged in there. And it just happens to be me working that day and we get the call and we show up and we do our thing and you know, he's fine. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, it just, it's one of, and I, you know, Christmas time we're putting out the inflatable blowups, you know, in my front yard and stuff like that. And they all have those stakes that you hammer into the ground, tie the cords so the blowups don't fly away. And it's one of those incidents where, you know, it's not a huge deal. Like we, do stuff like you know, it sounds cliche, but you save people, you know, and it's just kind of what you do, your job and whatever else. But like, I whenever I see a tent stake, I immediately go back to that to that moment. Right, it's just forever ingrained in my memory. Right. So, did you have kids? No. When that incident happened? Nope. No kids. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> it's if I if that had happened now, when I have kids. I don't know if I'd be any better than I was then. I don't know. It might be a little bit more worked up now. Right. You know, than before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Getting married and having kids definitely kind of changes your outlook on the, on the job a little bit. I don't know why I just thought of this, but I remember, I remember going to a call with a kid, uh, 
it was it was a medical call and i'm trying to remember exactly what the medical call was what they called in um and we get there and it's it's a it's a baby like they're out on the porch baby has a diaper on um i think it's a summer it is a summertime so all the baby has on is a diaper i think the call came in that the baby was turning blue or was in distress or something like that so we get there and uh this baby is is screaming like screaming bloody murder um and i'm like i don't i don't know i mean it's breathing it's screaming so i you know it's not it's not in an emergency per se but the parents are upset and i think the mom was holding it all of a sudden all of a sudden this kid this baby just leaves out the loudest fart <laughs> like type sound that i ever heard in my life and it ha- the kid had a diaper on but it was with such force that a piece of of a uh, baby crap flies out <laughs> of the diaper across the entire porch and splatters on like a post it was it was the most unbelievable thing i'd ever seen in my life yeah. i mean it was just crazy and if you hadn't been there to see it you, I, you it's like how do you that doesn't happen yeah yeah because it it flew, I'm I'm talking probably five six feet. It flew across the porch <laughs> and splatted against the uh, the wall. Uh, I, and the baby stopped crying. Yeah, it was just like a a gastrointestinal situation that was causing a lot of pain. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> I don't know why your ten steak story yeah. made me think yeah. of that, but um, oh. it did. So obviously, you know the um, you know as someone who's lived through. Uh, dealt with gone through a lot on the job um you probably have some opinions on some of the misconceptions about law enforcement when it comes to your shooting what misconceptions do you think people have that you wish they would understand about an incident like that or just law enforcement in general i i kind of i go back to uh with at the time of my shooting uh, s- small town. I grew up in there, you know, and you heard there were certain people that didn't like the police and were purporting these rumors that I shot myself, um, that my partner shot me and this is a cover up. And really the reason the bullet isn't coming out is because it's a cover up and all this nonsense. And this is before obviously social media is what it is today. So I can only imagine what the keyboard warriors would say if that same thing happened now. Um, but that, that kind of, you know, aside from the obvious that those are completely false, it just, it bothered me because the only people that I knew that were on that scene that night were me and the two other officers and the bad guy and how all these other people can come to these conclusions of what happened when they weren't there is I don't want to say frustrating, but it's just, I think it's almost kind of like reckless, you know, right. even selfish to some extent, you know, and it's, you know, so many analogies, but, you know, I always, when I go on calls and stuff, it's, uh, you know, especially domestics, it's, there's their version, there's the other version, and then there's the truth and stuff, you know, and right. some people only want to hear one version and come up with their own truths and not hear the other side of it or not even entertain the other side of it. And I just think that's, you know, it's not right. You know, you got to look at everything from as many different angles as you can and try to come up with your own opinion. Right. 
Now these these rumors that were being um, spread about your shooting, did those make it into the press at all? So right around that time, the one local newspaper um, through their website, you were able to comment on the article links, and some of my friends would sometimes share with me some of these people on these on this, I guess talk back or whatever you want to call it, right. on the internet thing. Uh, the comments that were being said and stuff like that. And I kind of wish they wouldn't because it just, you know, upset me. It didn't really serve any purpose. Um, but it was also kind of good to know what was being said too, I guess. Um, but it was, you know, anybody that can hop on the internet can say whatever they want and there's no real truth to it. Right. So. It kind of, it actually kind of surprises me that that ha- that was happening back in 2005. Um, Cause it, it feels I don't know. In some ways, it feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, you know that long ago, and just the the level of, um, I don't know, respect or it feels like in two thousand five, the police were looked on a lot more favorably than they are now. Uh, so I, I was actually surprised that that was going that those types of things were being said. I would say that you know, had it happened today. I th- I think the news would probably actually start probably reporting it uh, yeah. and and questioning it themselves instead of just reporting the facts as they know them start kind of giving into that a little bit. Right. Um, you know, I I mean we've seen it with cases uh, you know, the Jacob Blake case is a perfect example where, you know, uh they they said he was unarmed and all this and then he comes out of the hospital and gives an interview and says oh no i had a knife and i was trying to pick it back yeah. up you know it's just so yeah. ridiculous some of the stuff that gets reported out there in the press when i saw like a really good analogy too that and i i use this from time especially with my friends and my family when we're together and something will come up about whatever police related thing is going on in the news and yeah you know, i have a couple of family members that you know they know everything you know and this is one of the ones I use that will quickly basically shut them up is you take an object that is a cylinder and you know, looking at it, you can hold it. It's a cylinder, but if you turn it to the side, it's a circle. You know, if you turn and turn it to the circle side, shine a flashlight on it, the wall behind it is going to show a circle, right? You know, it's a cylinder, but if you're only looking at it from that direction, it's a circle. Or if you turn it long ways, you shine the flashlight and on the wall, it shows a rectangle. So it's like, it's one thing, but it can have three different, distinctly different characteristics. And it all depends on how you want to view it, you know? Um, And you obviously know it's a cylinder, but from one side, it's a rectangle. From one side, it's a circle. So what is it? You know, it's it's all three technically, you know, but... Sometimes the media will do one way and then somebody else will do another way. And you try to take in all of it and kind of come to your own conclusion, I guess. And I, I think if you take that analogy even further, it, it is a cylinder. That is what it is. Uh, all the other things that are said about it um, are not technically not true. I mean, it's a cylinder. So, you know, yeah, if you look at it this way, it, it appears to be a circle if you shine a light on it and the shadow on the wall, but it's still, it doesn't change the fact that it's a cylinder. Right. And I think sometimes in, uh, you know, in law enforcement, people, 
people have already decided that, you know, for whatever reason, uh, that, that we're the bad guys, we're the enemy. Um, and so that any, then any incident that comes up there, it's already colored in a, in a negative light. Right. Um, you, you also, uh, brought the analogy of just sports and how you have multiple referees looking at screens and doing this instant replay thing. So can you expand on that a little bit? I thought that was a really good analogy. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've been playing hockey since I was five. So I'm the guy that I'm a huge Flyers fan and whatnot, but if they're not on TV, I'll just watch whatever game's on TV. So back in January, there was a game between the Capitals and the Penguins and Capitals are winning two to one. Penguins score a goal to tie it. And if you've ever been to a professional hockey game, everything is extremely fast. They're skating fast. The puck is flying around 90, 100 miles an hour. It is super quick. And the referees, there's two referees and two linesmen, and they have to account for everything. And the referee closest to the net, uh, when the Penguins player shot the puck into the net, whistled it a goal. And at first glance, in real time, I thought it hit the post. But what it ended up happening is in the nets in the NHL, they have the cameras right inside the net, and they're in these big protective plastic bubbles. And the rule is that the puck has to completely cross the line in order to be a goal. But what ended up happening is that plastic bubble camera stuck out just far enough that the puck actually hit that, And because it hit it, it didn't actually cross the line. But if you take that bubble camera away, it does cross the line. And what was interesting for me as I'm sitting there watching this is the referee in real time at that speed called it a goal and knew it was a goal. But they spent five, six, seven minutes doing a review And they also sent it to what they call Toronto, where there's like a room with people reviewing goals and stuff. And while they're all looking at multiple different angles and trying to figure out if it's a goal or if it's not a goal, the three different announcers all each had their own conclusion as to whether or not it was a goal. And the one guy was even arguing that it's not a goal because it didn't cross the line. But the other guy's arguing, well, if it hit it and it's in the net, then it would have crossed the line because if that object's not there, it, it continues on. Right. And they're arguing about this. And I'm like, I can't even, I had such a moment where I was getting so frustrated. I'm like, what is so hard about this? You know what I mean? Like the puck clearly went in the net. It did not hit the post. It just hit the camera. They call it a goal, you right. know? And they spent so much time analyzing it. And again, they're looking at it in super slow motion over and over again from multiple different angles. You're getting three different opinions from guys that are seeing the exact same thing. But meanwhile, the referee who was literally right there in real time called it correctly. And in the end, they called it a goal and they ruled it a goal. And I, I, the parallel to that for me with being in law enforcement is oftentimes I feel like you will see that, you know, where the officers in real time have to make those split second decisions based on training experience and everything else and they get critiqued and analyzed and 
the people that are doing that have the benefit of hindsight, but those officers at that moment don't. And then ultimately, the, after you look at all the facts, all the evidence, the totality of the circumstances and everything, they rule in favor of the officer anyway. Right. But there's a long time period that goes on between when that incident happens and when that justification occurs. And there's a lot of things that go on in that, in that time that, you know, it's, it's kind of a lot of people have their opinions uh, and might not know all the facts and all that stuff. And, you know, I've seen it multiple times, you know, right. where grand juries investigate stuff and rule that the officer did nothing wrong. Right. You know, so. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, we live in a day and age where people just, they want to know right now. And, and for whatever reason, justice in people's minds is uh, immediate. Like it needs to be immediate justice. Uh, you know, the fact that, you know, right now that George Floyd uh, trial is going on, you know, there, everyone was screaming for justice. And I'm telling people, well, he, he was arrested. He's, on trial right now, a jury is going to decide there, there is being justice served. Um, you know, once all the facts of that case are out and the jury makes their decision, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, I, 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 I guess he could be charged anywhere from, I think I saw third degree murder down to, uh, manslaughter. So it'll be interesting to see once all the facts are out and, and all the videotape and all the witness testimony, what the jury decides in that, in that case. Um, but our justice system is and continues to work. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. It never will be perfect uh, on this side of heaven. But, you know, it, it's, it's better than, I think, any other country. Um, you know, I, I think people would be hard-pressed to tell me another country where the justice system is as good or, or fair as it is here in the United States. And, uh, so, so yeah, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a good point because officers just like yourself and the officers in that situation and the shooting, even, even the choking incident, you're making these split second decisions under high levels of stress. And then people can critique it. Uh, you know, it's, it's classic, you know, Sunday morning armchair quarterbacking, you know, your, your people are deciding if what you did was correct or not correct. And they're not even deciding it based on experience. They're just deciding it based on their feelings or their emotions. And, uh, it's, you know, it's just super frustrating for, for people in law enforcement right now, for officers in law enforcement right now, because they feel like they're, you know, damned if they do and damned if they don't. You know, and how do you, how do you, one thing I struggle with as, as a supervisor at the end of my career is how do I motivate my people to put themselves out there? You know, we still have a job to do. A 9 call comes in, we're still going to go, we're still going to answer it. But how do you encourage guys to do the job well, to be proactive, mm -hmm. to seek out the um, evildoer to seek out the person who's doing crime when it appears that all you get for doing that is aggravation and possible chance of losing your job or being brought up on charges for 
you know, a, a justifiable and righteous use of force. So I just think it's just a difficult time in law enforcement. And maybe the pendulum will swing back the other way. I don't know. Or maybe it'll just keep getting worse. You know, I don't know. But we need officers like yourself who are still in the job, um, who are willing to put themselves in those situations because there's a lot of people that can't or won't um, or have no desire to. And yeah, I think it's a different breed. You know, police officers are a different breed, kind of like military is a different breed. And, uh, you know, are you a Joe Rogan fan at all? I listen to him from time to time. Did you, yeah. did you see his uh, latest uh, interview? Well, I don't want to say his latest. I think it's been within the last week with uh, Marcus Luttrell. No. Oh, man. I, I was listening listen to today. It. It, yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> well, part of what ha- helps them is they, they, they drink whiskey the entire, <laughs> the entire interview. They're drinking whiskey. And let me tell you, they are drinking a lot of whiskey. Oh, wow. By the time of the end of the interview, I, I've, I think I have like 10, 15 minutes left. I can't even believe they're, they're still making so, sense because <laughs> they're, they're drinking whiskey the whole time, but yeah. um, super, super interesting. You, you listen to a guy like Marcus Luttrell and please hear me correctly, what he did and what many, poli- some police officers are involved in really horrendous things. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're an example of that. I mean, something that, you know, almost cost you your life. Um, but Mark Luttrell is talking about, you know, obviously what he was involved in and what he went through. Um, and it's just incredible listening to him talk. And I don't understand how people could listen to that and be like, there's something wrong with that. I mean, you need people like that, that literally are so bent on serving and helping people, um, that they, they can go through incredible hardships and yeah. still come out on the other side. Um, so I think it's a testament to you that, you know, you went through something extremely difficult, something that most people can't even have any concept of what it's like to go through. You came out on the other side, you came out well, and, and now you're able to use that experience to try to try to motivate, even if it's just your own kids, uh, but other people around you and, and give people a little different uh, perspective. So I think that's, I think that's good. And, and you mentioned too, that, you know, things you're passionate about, you know, on the job serving, uh, being a role model. And, and you, you told me, you know, serving by example. Um, and maybe we kind of covered that with just, just what you were talking about, uh, using your experience to, to, uh, just give a different perspective to people. But what else does that mean for you, serving by example? What what's tied up in that for you? It's I it, I mean again it 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 sounds cliche, but whenever, especially in my role as a detective, like whenever I'm dealing with somebody who's been a victim of some sort of serious crime, like I want I I have it in the back of my mind to treat them the way I would want like my family members treated, you know, or. If, my mom or my wife or somebody who's going through something like that. Like some I've, I've, you know, I've seen it. Everybody's different. Everybody has their own style in law enforcement of how they do things. And some guys are a little more, are a little more gruff and some guys are a little more, you know, open, I guess, or friendly or whatever you want to call it. And I just always try to be there for people who are in need. And, you know, I don't, sugarcoat anything i'm not going to promise them everything but i am going to work hard 
to try to bring peace to them, you know, and just do things the right way. Um, I, for years and years, I, I coached ice hockey from middle school through high school. And through that, it was almost 15 years with the kids, um, just being a good mentor and role model. And a lot of those kids have now gone on to become police officers and they've done ride alongs with me and stuff like that. And they've used me as references and they reach out to me from time to time and just kind of like along that line, like we know we just talked, it's difficult right now in law enforcement, you know, who would really want to do this job with, you know, some of the stuff going on and, there's still people out there that are willing to do it. Right. And when I see them uh, and recognize that and they, they come to me, like it's almost like a, a recruitment thing too. Like I mentor them, but it's like, okay, like he, he would be good. Like, you know, they would probably do all right, you know, and um, just kind of leading by example through that way too, you know, yeah. giving them somebody to look up to basically right. in law enforcement. Yeah. So, Yeah. I, th- I think that's really good. Um, I think, I think it's challenging to me too, because I, I, I was probably poor at that in my career. I think I was so, uh, I definitely didn't, didn't like, I don't want to say I didn't like, I wasn't a big participator in the community events. And, and, uh, I, I have, a <laughs> he's now a captain. Uh, he's the patrol captain. Like I would talk to him about this because you know he's he's like doing painting with a cop and coffee <sighs> with a cop and this and that and reading books and 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 I'm like maybe I'm a terrible person but all I want to do is like do like enforce the law like you know get after it but I think um, I don't think that was always correct like way of thinking for myself um, and and. Uh, if I convince him to convince him to come on the show, maybe we'll banter about that and argue about <laughs> it a little bit. But I do, I, I think what resonates with me about what you said is that your interaction with, with those kids, people who are impressionable, uh, was important because it, it's kind of led some of them to go and do the job. Uh, obviously, planting a seed uh, of you know, a thought of, you know, Hey, maybe this is something I want to do and, and being an example to them. And so I, yeah, maybe that's that, maybe that's, uh, something in my career I could have, could have done better. I, they had me talk to kids one time and that was the last time I talked to kids. <laughs> that was mostly because I didn't wreck. They, they had these like kids there. Uh, it was like a, a troop of, uh, kids. Um, I can't remember where they were from, if they were from a school or what, but, uh, they were just looking for someone to talk to them. I happened to be in the lobby of the police station. Hey, come in and talk to these kids. Tell them about what the select <laughs> enforcement unit does. Well, I'm going in cold. I don't, didn't have any kids. I never talked to a group of kids before. And uh, the unit I'm on, we did drug work and prostitution work. Well, I it's not really the warm and fuzzy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so I started talking to these kids and I mentioned, you know, we do a lot of drug work and we, you know, have undercovers and stuff. And then without thinking it, I dropped and we do some prostitution work. And <laughs> it was like, it escaped my mouth and I couldn't <laughs> take it back. And the parents in the room, it, it was bad. It yeah. was bad. Let me say they, they did not pull me in to talk to kids after that, because I think 
kids were asking their their parents on the way home, uh, "Mommy, Daddy, what's prostitution?" Yeah. Well, I mean, that, I got analogies for days, but there goes the analogy like the hockey team. You know what guys are good at? You know their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And uh, if they're not good in one area and they're good in another, maybe you steer them in that direction. So <laughs> we have guys in my department that we don't want them any part of giving the tours of the elementary schools that come into our station. They, right. they stay as far away from the station as possible. Right. And then other guys will take the tours because little bit better at it and yeah. softer at it you know yeah. so yeah uh, yeah so you're a detective now mm-hmm. how long were you on patrol then before you made detective uh um 13 years okay 2016 was when i got the detective spot okay so yeah okay and do you did you do you miss patrol or do you still get out in uniform so this past week um we were kind of we had a lot of people at training um so i actually worked patrol for a couple of shifts and I haven't done that in probably a year. And it was nice, honestly, to be back out just kind of cruising around, answering calls, um, doing all that sort of stuff. I miss it, um, to some extent, but it's kind of one of those things if I did it for, you know, a long period of time again, I'd probably miss doing detective work too. Right. So, um, I mean, even Saturday, the one, one of the calls I had was a maternity and the woman had delivered a baby in her townhome. So I showed up and there's mom and brand new 10 minute old baby laying on the floor of the living room. And I just walk in all chipper and cheery. I'm like, how are we doing? You know, and they're just <laughs> kind of laying there and I'm like, you know what? I'm just kind of, I'm just going to hang out until the ambulance gets here, make sure baby's breathing everything. And ambulance got there and took care of everything, cut the cord, all that stuff. But it was just kind of wow. like, you know, I'm at my desk most of the time and it's just, I got the radio going, right. I'm typing, I'm in my own little bubble and right. then you're out on the street and you just kind of forget, you know, some of the things that go on, I guess. Yeah. So. That's the, uh, the curse of being a detective sometimes. And you just, you just yell at the guys for terrible reports yeah. <laughs> and you forget like the, the chaos of the street sometimes. But, um, yeah, I, I, uh, in the city, we had the luxury of if a maternity call came in, we could avoid it like the plague. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 We wouldn't even go EMS. I mean, EMS. Um, yeah, we were busy enough too that, we, and since it was in the city and so close to the hospital and everything, yeah, they would. We didn't even have to go to those. Yeah. So I never, never got to experience that, yeah. which I'm not very upset about. So. Yeah, I, I, as soon as I'm walking up to the door, I'm like, kind of having that moment of, all right, if this is bad, do I really remember what I'm supposed right. to do? You know, cause yeah. I, I don't want to fail either. Right. You know, so, but luckily everything was fine and we just hung out till the ambulance yeah. got there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that, that's that feeling in your gut. You get to a call and you're like, uh, do I know what I'm supposed to do uh-huh. here? Yeah. Uh, you just kind of work it out and feel, feel your way through it. You also mentioned, you know, ice hockey. Mm-hmm. You're big into ice hockey. You still you still play? There's a local over 35 uh, league that I play in. Uh, we play like once, twice a week. And just a bunch of guys I've known for years. And it's we all we all know we're we're not making it to the pros. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's just literally exercise. Yeah. Uh, we don't keep stats. It's just a fun time. And when you're out there skating around, you just kind of you just forget about things, I guess you're yeah. just kind of in your own little Zen, you know, at the rink, just skating right. around doing your thing. 
Um, and every there's a couple sessions a year, winter, spring, and fall. And it's the same group of guys, but we'll captains will pick different teams. So each session, you're changing up your team, but it's all guys you've played with or you know on the opposite team. So there's no like bickering or fighting or any of that stuff. It's literally just, hey, let's show up, just exercise and play, pretend like we're young again type stuff. Yeah. Do you know, are there any uh, city, Lancaster City PD guys that play Um, in that league? Reich? Okay. Uh, Yeah. He he was. uh, I haven't seen him for a while, though. Okay. Um, Because when he tells hockey stories, he makes it sound like it's, he makes it sound like he's in the NHL. I'm not going to lie. So he, there, there are some guys that, uh, despite their age and the fact there's no scouts in the stands, that still like to pretend like <laughs> they're, they're living the glory days and stuff. So That would probably be him. He, yeah. he's gonna, I'm definitely going to get a text after this episode <laughs> is released because he's going to be like, what are you doing? But yeah, he, he likes to talk a big game about it, how awesome he is at hockey and yeah. how well he plays. But um so maybe maybe i could organize like a one-on-one between you two just to yeah, see what happens sure yeah we'll set it up <laughs> <laughs> awesome well i really uh appreciate you coming uh coming on um any other uh words of wisdom for us i i feel like i i, I really feel like your analogies uh are really good is it is this something you do often like the analogies things i i just i've i have the ability i guess in some respect to you know, translate things that I've done in coaching and hockey to work situations, things I see on TV in regards to like the camera review. And I parallel that to how we get treated sometimes with situations at work and stuff. And right. I don't know. I just, some things just stick with me. And I guess what fuels that, and I'm sure a lot of people, officers can relate, is I'll go to the family barbecue and you all, you have that one relative that whatever latest thing is in the news likes to bring it up in front of everybody and act like they are the know-it-all I guess and I quickly will try my best to politely uh I guess for lack of a better term put them in their place in in regards to a lot of things and right. I will break out my analogies at the opportune times so I like that I uh and do you keep, are you able to like maintain your composure and, and not lose your temper? Yeah. And what's funny about that is like some of my, some of my relatives will know it's coming and like they, they like brace for it. Like they kind of look for it. And I, I share stories about these things too with the guys I work with and I will tell them like what I'm thinking going into the family get together and then what the outcome was and they all get a kick out of it. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, some of them, some of my family members at these gatherings probably think like, why, why are you even bringing this stuff up anymore? Like, just don't, don't give him any reason to get going type right. thing, you know, but you know, you have the, have the aunt that says, why don't they just shoot the knife out of his hand? And it's <laughs> like, holy, are we going there? Is this what we're going to talk about? Okay. Well, you started it, you know, right. and then no. I'll just, I will just go. Right, you know, and my wife's usually sitting there like, "Jeffin, calm down." And I'm like, "I'm, I'm calm." Uh, you know, it's just like, "Why?" You just this? can't let it go. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and, and it, what other profession 
do you sit around with at the family get together and critique? Right. Like it's some of them are nurses and, and other professions. It's not like I sit around and critique how they did in their nurse's job that week. Right. Or it's not on the news. And it's just like, why are you bringing this up? Right. So now is this your side of the family yeah. or your wife's? Yeah. I can't even blame my wife's side of the family for oh, this. Wow. This isn't mine. So, okay. Um, so yeah. you're, you go in like with double barrel analogies, right? I'm to just go. ready to go. And if I have to break them out, I do. And if I don't, then it's a good day. Yeah. And I'm again, I'm not mean about it. And I love my family. It's just, you know, every once in a while, there's the comments. And now are the it's com- just kind of like, okay. Are the comments, to, are they uh, antagonistic or are they just like a legitimate question? Yeah, it's not antagonistic. It's not like they're, you know, looking down on, or, you know, it's just whatever. It's almost like if there's no conversation going on, It'll they'll they'll bring up something you yeah. know and then it just kind of just like poke each know. other watch watch me say this watch yeah. watch what Jevin does yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah and again I'm it's not like I'm yelling or carrying on I just I just kind of spout it out and, right but you're you're right you you it it I I don't know we're supposed to solve all the world's ills I guess and we're also the problem of all the wor- world's ills right now at right. least that's how it feels like. And, and, uh, you're right. It doesn't, I don't understand why people in other professions are, are held to the same standard. Doctors, for instance, have you ever read the stat on how many people die from malpractice every year? No. At the hands of doctors and the well, medical. I can only imagine. It's like, it's about 250,000 people a year. Yeah. And people, you know, and nothing, no one ever wants to talk about that, you know? So, yeah. I mean. I mean, I, I remember Christmas last year somebody bringing up about the police brutality and and unarmed people and all this stuff and i already knew the washington post article from heather mcdonald that breaks the stats down right and i literally recited them yeah and i was like this is what the statistics are based upon you know the crime data and stuff so like i understand what your thoughts and feelings are but then you also have to take into account the actual hardline numbers right. too, and then then okay, you have that, and you have the other side of it, and then make uh, formulate right. you know your conclusion, I guess. You yeah. Know? So, and I think that was a difficult thing for for me in twenty twenty, you know, the last year of my career is uh, everyone was like falling over themselves to uh, listen and and try to understand and. Um, you know, we, we have to listen. We, we can't talk. We have to listen. I'm like, oh, okay. But in saying that, not one single person wants to listen to a police officer. You, it, it, it's like they don't, it, it's like their opinion doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. Their experience doesn't matter. Only, only this experience over here. And, uh, you know, I, I guess, is there is there racism in law enforcement? Sure, absolutely. It would be ridiculous for me to say there are no racists in law enforcement. I personally haven't met them, uh, but I'm I'm sure they're there. But you don't indict the whole for the sins of a few. And 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 you know, to your point, Heather McDonald and and the stats uh, she she put out. I also read that article in the Washington Post. Uh, you can't you can't write off facts just because you feel a certain way. Right. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where 
personal responsibility is completely tossed out the window. This idea that, you know, if terrible things happen to you, then you are then somehow okay doing other terrible things to other people. And, you know, it's a cycle, uh, but is what it is. I guess it's what we signed up for, right? Yeah. in some, in some regards, I guess, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but you know, I'll have to, uh, I'll have to keep in my family luckily is pretty, pretty understanding. Um, I have, you know, maybe a couple people in my family that I've had some lively discussions with, but, uh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll shoot you a text and be like, Hey, Jevin, I need a, I need an analogy <laughs> yes. for this, this uh-huh. uh, conversation I'm going to be having here soon. Uh, probably could use them for, for some conversations with some, some friends of mine, but, um, well, anyway, I, I, I go that route sometimes too. Yeah. So, yeah. I, the, the one thing also I've tried to start doing is instead of trying to argue my point is just start asking questions. Um, you know, in the store the other day, you know, a couple months ago, I had a guy in the store. Um, and he was, uh, he started bashing the police. Like he, he started in with the masks and COVID and everything. And he, he was like having this, he was saying this stuff and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not touching it. He's a customer here, but, but he wanted to talk about this. So he, mm-hmm. he keeps going, he keeps going, he keeps going. So he ropes me in. So we start having like a discussion slash little debate. He had already bought stuff from the store. So that's good. We're, that's we're, key. We're good to go. <laughs> and, uh, so we get into it a little bit and uh, then he starts talking about how he doesn't like authority and he starts bashing the police. He starts uh, specifically bashing the Lancaster City police and obviously the store I work at is in Lancaster City. So I just let him go and I, I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to get upset. I'm just going to ask him questions. So I would just ask him questions, you know, well, what do you think about this? Do you think the police should just let that happen? Do you think, you know, they should ignore that crime? And, and what if they do ignore that crime, what does that mean for crime going forward is it going to get better then or is it going to get worse like all these all these things and stuff and then finally towards the end of the conversation i'm like just so you know i i did 20 years for the Lancaster city police department <laughs> you know and, and he's like well you know they're not that bad you know yeah. i started backtracking a little yeah. bit but uh i shook his hand at the end and i said hey i i appreciate you talking to me and and having a conversation with me we obviously do not agree hardly on anything but at least you uh and i were able to have a debate without it turning into a screaming or cursing match or anything like that. So yeah. it's possible to be done. I think it needs to be done on person. Social media is a joke. No, I mean, uh, you know, I hate, hate people texting me too. I, I I'd much rather yeah. have it in person, but I've had a few conversations with friends, you know, over time. And, you know, a big one that kind of comes up from time to time is the police reform and reforming this and reforming that. And, my my point to that always to them is well do you feel like our community should have the same policing style as Lancaster City 10 minutes down the road or how about we go 10 15 minutes north into farm country where it's extremely rural and you don't have the same elements like what kind of reform are you looking for because it almost has to be community specific you can't just have a blanket police reform. Every area is, is different, you right. know, and there's obviously a lot more to it than just that. Right. But you know, the way we do things is different than the next police department. We've adapted our policies, you know, to, to coordinate with how our officials want us to police, so to speak, you know, obviously keep in mind, 
you know, rules of criminal procedure, all that stuff too. But it's still, it's still a different element from place to place. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, and that's, that's one thing I've, I've shared with people too. Cause so in the city, the area that I worked in was, was primarily, um, you know, minority. So the, the Southeast area of the city where I worked, it was mostly, um, black and, and Hispanic, uh, people. And, um, so I would, you know, I would tell people if, if you would just look at who I arrested, uh, you, you would, and then you look at me, a white male, you might say, oh, he's a racist. He's, he, you know, the majority of his arrests are, are people of this ethnicity or this race. But I said, the thing you have to take into consideration is, first of all, that was the community I worked in. Um, it was the community that I enjoyed working in. And then it also doesn't take into consideration the people of the same races and ethnicities that I helped. Right. Because those were the people that were calling 911 every single day and making reports and um, giving us information like, hey, we have guys hanging out on this street corner, this block, this problem house here. Like, you know, I was helping those people too. Like, I, I you know, as much as I tried to be a part of the community, obviously, you know, because of my job, my authority level and, and my skin color too. Um, you know, I wasn't accepted, but I, I tried to just do my job in that community. And so I think, I think you make a good point that every police department's different. Every jurisdiction's different. Um, you know, the problems and the people in those areas and jurisdictions are different. Um, it's all, it's all different. Everyone wants like this, Hey, we're going to do this and this is going to solve the problem. Body cameras. That's going to solve the problem. You know, is it solving the problem? No, it's not. In fact, it's just producing more videos that people can get upset about. Um, but tough times, <laughs> interesting times. As uh, I, I just wish, like you, you kind of touched on it. The good stuff, nobody ever hears about the good stuff, right? Like it's, your ten stake story, right? And you know, even to to that, you know, I don't even bring it up till now because it's not really. What does it matter? But that family was Hispanic. You know, right. so it's, I just, you just do your thing. It doesn't yeah. matter. You're just there to help. You know, it's just, it's, it's what we're there to do. Right. And, you know, that particular story, like I was telling my detective partner that the other day, he had never even heard about the tent stake story. And it's like, well, did you get, did you get like a letter or anything for that? I'm like, I don't even think anybody knew about it. You right. know, seriously, it was just one of those things. You just go right. and you do your job and that's it. Then you move on to the next call. and. It doesn't end up in the news. It doesn't end up anywhere in particular. But if I would do something that looks bad, obviously that's the only thing in my whole career that is going to get highlighted. Right. Not the letters of accommodation, the saves, any of that stuff, you know? And, you know, some of these incidents, you know, I think some of that is lost, yeah. you know, to some extent. Yeah. Uh, not saying, you know, things aren't obviously bad, you know, but I mean, like, it's, there's so much good that just officers in my department have done in the 17 years that I've been there that in a small town with not a whole lot going on, I mean, it's remarkable, some of the stuff they've done. And I can only imagine what it's like in bigger departments. And nobody in our community probably has any idea of the type of stuff that we do. Right. And we don't put it out there. Right. You know, it's just our thing. We just do it and we move right. on. Yeah. So... Yeah. And I, I, you know, again, I mean, yes, our, our, 
is law enforcement perfect? No, but I think, you know, people that, you know, officers who have been through something like you have, um, even now as we're speaking, like it's not lost on me. Like there are officers who are literally putting their lives on the line that are involved in knockdown drag out fights with people that have weapons and, and they're doing it right now somewhere in the world, right? Somewhere, probably even just in the U S right now, we have an officer that is possibly fighting for his life. And it just bothers me, man. It, it bothers, it really bothers me to see some of the stuff that's being said and, and, um, you know, the, the pushback and the narrative against, against the police. It's just, it, it's, it's really disgusted me. And it's quite frankly, kind of what, you know, kind of drove me to do, to do this podcast. It was one of, one of the goals of, of the podcast. So yeah, man, I just, I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Um, you know, up until, uh, this episode, we actually never, I don't think we've ever met face to face, um, on the job, even though we, you know, you know, I worked in a jurisdiction that was close to yours. Um, I knew a little bit of your story. I didn't know all the details you shared, uh, on this episode and, and, um, yeah, so I just appreciate you coming on and talking about it and taking the time out of your, out of your schedule. So anything else, any closing, closing words of wisdom for us? Not really. Okay. No, just thanks for having me. It was, yeah. it was, I feel it's good. It's always good to share. I feel it's kind of therapeutic for me to talk about it in a way. And I, if, if people can learn anything from it, whether officers listening or whatever, then it's beneficial. Yeah. And even people who, you know, I have a lot of people who aren't officers um, who have reached out and said, you know, it's just so helpful to hear the heart and the minds behind the officers that are doing the job. And uh, so um, it's helpful in that way, too. Um, So, yeah, I appreciate having you on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm so thankful that Detective Jevin Miller came on the pod and shared his story. He has sacrificed much in his service to the community in which he works, and he continues to do it day in and day out. He is actually like many officers I know. Uh, In fact, several days ago, on my way to work, I saw a police cruiser parked in a cemetery uh, in Lancaster City. This is the same cemetery I also used to park in uh, during the morning hours Uh, And I would work on paperwork there uh, before the busyness of the day controlled my activity. Uh, The next day, I saw a cruiser again uh, in the same cemetery. And this time, I turned around and actually went back to see who was in it and to talk to that officer. I was pretty sure I knew uh, who was going to be uh, in that cruiser based on the area where the cemetery is located. Knowing the shift that was working and knowing one of the officers who patrolled the area where the cemetery is located. I believed it was going to be one of my friends, a guy I like to call a true American. And I wanted to speak with a true American. I wanted to talk to someone like this guy. He's a guy who served the country and the armed forces, and he's now a police officer. A guy who is extremely frustrated with the way our culture has declined morally and how the lawbreakers are lifted up as martyrs with murals of them even painted on the sides of buildings 
While those who try to bring accountability and law enforcement are demonized over and over again, he's frustrated by the idea that diversion programs, treatment programs, help, coddling uh, will solve the problem. Sure, they have their place, but their place is hand-in-hand with consequences, with accountability, with discipline. I I dealt with the same thing as a supervisor. I deal with the same things as a parent. The fact that I want to train and teach and guide and help. But the very real fact that those things oftentimes need to be done in conjunction with the consequences for bad behavior. Isn't this how God deals with us? We sin and we face consequences. And yet he teaches us and we learn through his word how we are to act. I have brothers in Christ who have committed grave sins before placing their faith and trust in Jesus, and even after being saved are still feeling and will continue to feel the consequences of those actions on this side of heaven. But yet, in that, the Lord has given them a lot of mercy and a lot of grace and has opened their eyes to right living through the power of the Holy Spirit um, and teaching them consequences with teaching and help. And yet, we as a country have entered a social experiment where we believe we have a better way than what we are taught in His Word. In our own families, we believe we have a better way than what Proverbs 13.24 says, whoever spares the rod hates their children but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. This is carried over into how we deal with criminal activity. Believing that loving someone means we don't hold people accountable, we don't give consequences instead of hoping and believing that diversion and programs and assistance and appeasement and affirmation will correct behavior. It doesn't. And it only leads to chaos. We have chaos in our own homes where children do as they please and we cajole, plead, beg, and even try to buy good behavior. We spend hours trying to get our kids to do what we want instead of setting expectations that we then back up with consequences. I know parents who spend hours trying to get their kids to sleep and keep them in bed who follow them around when in public to make sure they don't break anything or grab anything, who don't expect good behavior but instead expect bad behavior because, quote, kids will be kids, who expect their pets to behave better than their very own children. We have lost our minds, and this has seeped over into our culture. Recently, I started watching a YouTube documentary called The Fight for the Soul of Seattle. I actually just finished it. It's a documentary done by KOMO News in Seattle and an anchor by the name of Eric Johnson. I'd actually encourage you to watch it and see what it looks like when we deny the deity of Christ and the law of God. When we believe that we know better and that we have a better way. Lauren recently made the point that in some ways, We have hearkened back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, where we believe that we have a better way. 
and that we can build something that can reach into the heavens and be better. That we can make a name for ourselves and be like God, knowing a better way and denying the teachings of his word. Man, may we fall on our faces and ask God to forgive us for our sins and ask him to have mercy on us as a country. For only he is able to save and only he has the answers for us. Will I bend my knee and ask him to help me be a doer of the word and not just a hearer of the word as James 1 teaches us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you are an enemy of God. And will you bend your knee and confess your sins and believe? Romans 5, 6 through 11 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. I'll read that again. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I hope you hear the hope that this passage offers offers us. There is no hope in the ideas and ideologies of men. This world is marching toward the end. There will be an end, and not everyone will, at the end, be considered a friend of God. Instead, being considered enemies of God, they will face the full force of his wrath. But this passage gives us the hope that we need. Simply stated, it is in and through Jesus alone. Romans 10.9 says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That decision, my friend, will change your life. You can make that decision right now. Confess, believe, be saved. I pray that you would make that decision even now. And then after making that decision, get yourself into a church that unapologetically preaches the word of God so you can be discipled and taught all that he has commanded. That is my prayer for you if you do not believe. Lastly, thank you for your support of Diakonos, a cop's calling. I'm not yet sure what I will be doing on next week's episode. I have options, and I haven't yet landed on one of them, but I hope you'll give your ears again next week. I appreciate all the comments and encouragement I get every week. I have been blown away by your support. I'm humbled and encouraged every week when people continue to listen and share the podcast with people they know. Please continue to do that. You can follow Diakonasa Cops Calling on Facebook, uh, on our Facebook page. Uh, and on there, you can get audio trailers every week and other information and news. If you are a police officer, be like my true American friend, 
do the next right thing. Do your job and kick up the dust in pursuit of the lawbreakers. Don't ever stop doing it.